Well, good morning. Can you guys hear me okay? The mic, I think the mic is on. Uh, I want you to open up uh, your Bibles to Titus. We were there last week and we'll be there again this week. Uh, and uh, yes, the, the children can be dismissed third grade and under uh, into the, the children's ministry. And uh, so these last uh, few weeks we've been covering uh, our, our core values as a church, uh, our, our, four, our four W's. Uh, so we're going to have a pop quiz now. What, what are those four W's? What have, we, what have we talked about? Talk to me. Worship. Okay, that's uh, first and foremost. We want everything that we do to be supported uh, and be driven, motivated by worship. What's the next one? Word. Word. All right. Worship. Word. Okay, we want to be uh, rooted and, and built up in the scriptures. We want to build our church and our individual lives upon the truth of God's word. What else? Worship. Word. Walk. Walk. Okay, we, we want to live out uh, what God is calling us to live out. And we want to do that in a community of believers because the Christian life was not intended to be uh, lived alone. Uh, as our, the pastor of our sending church would say, a, a lone ranger is a dead ranger in the Christian life. Uh, so we have worship, work, walk, and then what's, uh, what's the fourth one? Witness. And, and last week we looked at uh, the whole book of Titus, uh, all three chapters, uh, and we, we saw that your... Your walk is connected with your witness. Uh, if you're not walking, uh, your witness is going to be silenced. Uh, and, and what I want to come back around to this morning uh, is to look at uh, Titus uh, 2, verses 11 to 14, uh, and kind of talk about worship uh, once again. Uh, because uh, th- this morning is going to be about motivation, uh, about what should uh, motivate our obedience to God. Uh, and if, if we get the motivation wrong, uh, it's going to feel uh, like a drudgery uh, in order to, to obey God. Any, any of you ever felt that way, uh, that, that you, you lose sight of why you're doing something uh, and you just feel like you have to go through these motions and, oh, I have to do this or this and this and this. Uh, and uh, that, that is in no way enjoyable, just to go through a, a drudgery or just feel like you have to do something just because you have to. Uh, have your parents ever told you that, students? Uh, why, why do I have to do this? Because I said so. Uh, yes, that we, we need to obey God because he says so, but it's also, uh, he always gives us a why to the commands that he gives us as well. Uh, and as we're going to, uh, to look at, at Titus uh, chapter 2 this morning, let's actually begin in, in Titus uh, 2 verse 1 and, and look at the commands that uh, the instruction that Paul gives to Titus. And Titus uh, is, a, is a young pastor uh, on the island of Crete. Uh, and Paul was ministering with him, and then Paul left to go do ministry elsewhere. And now he's writing back to Titus and instructing him how to, how to establish these young churches uh, in, in their ministry, which is extremely applicable for us right now as we begin to, to launch uh, what is a young church. Uh, and uh, we'll see that everything that, that is instructed here uh, to Titus, uh, we need to be applying as well. But let's begin reading uh, in Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So all of that with instruction, and then the verses that we're going to be looking at today explain the motivation, verses 11 to 14, that what, what should motivate obedience to all of those commands, that, that really long laundry list to every, every uh, group in the church. Well, this is what is to motivate them. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And as we, as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to see what should motivate us to, to obey the commands in, in verses 1 through 10. Well, it's, it's the grace of God, uh, God's grace that has been shown to us. And there's three characteristics here that we'll see. Number one, it's a, uh, it's a saving grace. Yeah, we're going to see that in verse 11. Secondly, we're going to see that it is a sanctifying grace, meaning that uh, the grace of God is intended to transform who we are, to make us holy, to make us like Christ. Uh, that's in verses 12 and 13. And then in verse 14, we're going to see that it is a sacrificial grace, uh, that it costs God something to extend this grace to us. Well, let's, uh, let's begin looking first at uh, the saving grace of God in verse 11. Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay, so uh, it's kind of an ambiguous statement. So in what way has the grace of God appeared? What is he referring to? Well, he, he's pointing to actually a person. Uh, see, the, the grace of God who has appeared is Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is the one who has appeared. He is the, the manifestation of uh, God's grace. John chapter 1 talks about uh, Grace and truth come from Jesus Christ, and from him come grace upon grace. Uh, and this is what Paul is, is echoing here, that uh, God's grace is a saving grace because Jesus Christ is the manifestation. That word appearing is literally uh, an epiphany, right? That, that thought that pops into your head. Jesus Christ is that epiphany of the grace of God, uh, and he demonstrates uh, God's character, who he is. And what he brings is, what do we see there in verse 11? He, he has appeared bringing salvation. See, see, salvation only comes through Jesus Christ, not uh, through your own actions and efforts, not through another individual. Uh, Jesus Christ is the God-man, uh, the Son of God who came to live a perfect life on the earth, uh, who willingly gave his life uh, for sins on the cross. Uh, and when we believe in him, our faith uh, creates a transaction. Uh, his righteousness gets imputed to us, imparted to us, and our sin gets placed upon him, nailed to his cross, as we looked at a couple weeks ago in Colossians. 
Uh, and this, this statement of, hey, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Okay, of, so is that saying uh, that everybody in the world is saved because Christ has brought salvation to everybody? This is where we get to, uh, to try and figure out what Paul is saying here and using uh, proper uh, study methods. Of, uh, he's not saying everybody is saved because that would clearly contradict other things that he's said. But what he's saying here is that salvation is freely offered to all people uh, without distinction. Okay, meaning uh, that salvation is offered to uh, men and women and children. Uh, it's offered to every race. It's offered to uh, people of every uh, status, uh, whether you're rich or poor, uh, young or old. The gospel is offered to everybody. Uh, listening to, to a podcast this week, somebody was explaining this of how to, what the gospel calls us to. It, it, it's offered to everybody if you're willing to go low enough. Uh, uh, if, if you're willing to, to humble yourself and acknowledge that you can't save yourself, then the gospel is for you. Uh, in, in the gospels in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, uh, Jesus says, I didn't come to save uh, those who are healthy, but those who are sick. Uh, I came to save sinners. That's what Jesus said. And that is what we see here, that, that God's grace that has appeared, it is a saving grace uh, that is extended to all people. Uh, and think of it this way, of when, if you were sick in the hospital, uh, how meaningful would it be if, if somebody came to visit you? It would mean a lot, right? It would be very impactful if they came to visit you. And uh, the, the distance that they covered to, to get to you, wouldn't that be even more meaningful? That would express an, an urgency to be there with you. And, and what would it communicate on their part? Love, wouldn't it? Uh, and so think about this. God, who's, who's in the heavens, Jesus Christ, who is equal with with God himself, what did he choose to do? He, he tr- chose to, to traverse uh, time and space, to humble himself, to become a man, to come to earth for us, so that he might live and that he might die for our benefit. Uh, there, there is no greater way to express love and concern than this, and this is what Jesus has done. And we need to, to understand this truth first and foremost, that God's grace is a saving grace, and this is what should motivate all of our obedience. Uh, C.J. Mahaney uh, has said, there's, there's one transcendent truth that should define our lives. One simple truth should motivate our work and affect every part of who we are. That Christ has died for our sins. See, and, and if Christ has died for our sins, that, that, that work is complete. It's finished. We don't have to continue to try and work to earn God's affection anymore. Uh, we, we, we rest in what Christ has done, and now we can sing, He will hold me fast, because we know it wasn't based upon our obedience, but it was based upon what Christ has already done. Uh, we talked about this, I think, with the, with the youth as well uh, on Wednesday night. If it was based upon my obedience, what would always be hanging it out there in the air? Talk to me. If salvation was based upon what I do, I would never know for sure if I was saved. What would always, that question would always be there. Have I done enough? Or have I done something to cancel out what I earned before? Uh, and so you would always have to be weighing the, these scales of have I done enough for salvation? You would never have any assurance. You could never sing with sincerity that Christ holds you fast. You would never have hope in any situation because you don't know if you can run to Christ or if he's going to be your judge. But because it's in his hands, we, we can run to him as Savior, not as our judge. And what an encouragement that is. And that should motivate uh, all of our obedience from that point forward because now we're, we're acting in thanksgiving, not in 
uh, and in any effort to earn something from him. Uh, so first and foremost, God's grace is a saving grace. Uh, but then, uh, secondly, God's grace is a sanctifying grace. The grace of God that has been extended to us for our salvation doesn't intend uh, to just leave us there. Uh, God wants to transform us and make us now like his son, Jesus. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. So training us, meaning the grace of God, this is what it does. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, and, uh, and what this is talking about, we, we have training, or the idea, I think the NASB has instructing. The idea really is educating and really kind of educating a child. Now, how much goes into educating a child? What do you have to teach them? Yeah, everything. <laughs> uh, you, you have to teach them literally how to do everything, and if they, if they don't listen at times, what do you have to do? Dis- discipline. You have to chase and you have to help guide their hearts and their bodies at times uh, to, to listen and obey so that they are, get set on the right trajectory. And that is what the grace of God does for us in our hearts. It leads us. It guides us. Uh, it is training us. And it's training us for three things. Uh, what we're to say no to, uh, what we're to say yes to, and then what we're to look forward to. Okay, We're to say no to, look what it says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Okay, and now ungodliness is probably one of those sins that we are not, uh, usually it's not even on our radar. But anytime we're not uh, thinking about God, even w- when we're consumed with ourselves, when we're, when we're acting upon our own needs uh, and, and focused upon ourselves, that is actually the sin of ungodliness. Jerry Bridges, uh, an, an author and just a, a dear uh, Christian man, uh, def- defines ungodliness in this way. He says, Ungodliness is living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, God's will, God's glory, or our dependence on God. Think think about that. So to to one extent or another, we are all guilty of the sin of ungodliness. Uh, It's prevalent in our lives. And and, uh, what are we called to renounce here? What are we called to say no to here? Is ungodliness. Uh, Ungodliness and then... uh, Hand in hand with that would be worldly uh, passions, uh, those things that the, that the world is trying to get us to to follow after and to pursue instead of pursuing Christ. Uh, and uh, usually, how do what, what does it look like to be dependent upon God? Now, how how do we most readily demonstrate dependence upon Him? Talk to me. Prayer. Yeah, and uh, if prayer most radically demonstrates a dependence upon God, what most radically demonstrates independence from God? Yeah, you could say prayerlessness, uh, not going to God in prayer. Uh, you can, uh, Abraham uh, Lincoln, uh, during the time of the, uh, the Civil War, April 1863, he, uh, he, he called for a national day of humiliation, fasting and prayer. Now, so right at the height of the, the Civil War, he, he, he calls for this day, and this is what he, he wrote uh, as he announced it. He says, It is the duty of nations, as well as of men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. 
and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. And that's an amazing quote from Abraham Lincoln calling for not just uh, himself and, and the leaders to do that, but for, for everybody. Everybody, examine your hearts, humble yourselves this day, and pray to God. And, and that's, what, uh, that's what he was calling people to. And if, if Abraham Lincoln was, was calling people to that, uh, how much more do we need to call ourselves to that? Right? Uh, to, to examine our hearts on a daily basis, to humble ourselves and to go to the Lord in prayer, uh, asking him to transform our hearts, to, to, to imprint upon our souls of what we need to say no to, 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 to help us to see those ways that we have unknowingly begun to pursue the world and, and its uh, allurements, uh, and to, to be, become independent and self-sufficient. And say, Lord, help us to see that. Help us to see those sins and then turn from them. And then what, what does God call us to say yes to? And he describes that here. So we are to not only renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Uh, that, that is what God is calling us to say yes to, what we are to, to put on. Uh, and to, to be uh, self-controlled, we talked about last week, uh, it was the only instruction to the younger men, which is what we need most. To, uh, young men, just be, be sensible, be self-controlled. And now every believer is called to be sensible. Every individual who calls upon Christ is called to live a self-controlled life, uh, which is really uh, a, a life yielded to the Spirit. Because what's one of the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control, which is kind of a, a paradox. Of if you want self-control, give control to the Spirit uh, uh, and, and walk according to His ways rather than your own. And that's what we are called to do. Uh, and then upright and godly lives in the present age. And what we looked at in the whole of the letter, living an upright and godly life in this present age, what will that allow us to do? It will allow us to, to witness to others. And what it does, as we see in chapter or verse 10 of chapter 2, uh, it adorns the doctrine of God. It makes uh, God look attractive. Even though the gospel itself is a foolish message, the world around us begins to be attracted because they see our transformed lives. Uh, and they begin to see everything that they're experiencing we're not experiencing. Hey, why don't, why don't you have this, you know, why don't you have all of that in your life? Well, it's a consequence of, of sin, and God's called me to live a, a holy life and to pursue Him. Uh, so we are to, uh, to say no to something and to say yes to something because... Uh, if you're going to take something on, you have to naturally put something off. Have you ever been taking groceries from the car uh, and you get to the front door and you have grocery bags? And this is what I do because I don't want to take that second trip. Uh, I try and just fill my hands completely with groceries. But then uh, you, have, you go to that door handle and you have to like twist it. And those paper bags that are in your hand, you just you can't do that. So what do I have to do? I can't carry the groceries and open the door unless I just want to kick the door down and replace the door. But what do I have to do in order to open the door? 
I got to put them down. And see, see we can't uh, re, uh, just put on uh, self-control and, and godly habits without first putting off what? Uh, all of our ungodly habits. We, we have to begin to, to renounce worldly passions and desires if we're truly going to, to follow after Christ and do what he's calling us to do. It, it's, a, it's a both end. We have to put off and we have to put on. And then... What is our attitude supposed to be as we're, is what we're supposed to say yes to, is what we're supposed to say no to, uh, and then what, where are our eyes supposed to be? Well, we see that in, in verse 13. So we've seen we're to renounce, we're to live, and then we are to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we are to be looking forward to and anticipating the return of Jesus, because he's coming back. Uh, and that's what gives us hope and assurance. We, that's what we sang about today, of that, that glorious day when, uh, when all things will be made new, when, when the curse will be reversed, when there will be no more uh, sin or sickness or crying or mourning. Uh, that's what we are to look forward to, of, of Christ's return, when he will make all things right. Uh, and that should, uh, that should motivate us, and we need to to be on the lookout constantly, watchful, watching and waiting, because if we don't know when he returns, when do we have to be ready? All the time, yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's the point of, of waiting in, in expectation and looking uh, forward to his return uh, should greatly, greatly motivate us in terms of uh, one, uh, holy living in this life. If, if you have your Bibles, turn over to, to Matthew uh, 24. Beginning in verse, uh, in verse 42, it says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, of See, the return of Christ should motivate us to holy living, because we're going to be rewarded for our faithfulness when Christ returns. Uh, and in, in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus lays out what what's going to happen when he returns. And in Matthew 25, there's two parables about what it looks like to be faithful. Uh, the two parables that teach us to, to be faithful, the, the parable of the ten virgins, five were ready and five were not, and then the parable of the talents, uh, which is where uh, those servants who, who took the resources that were given to them and, went and used them for the glory and the gain of their master, what did they hear when the master returned? Well done, good and faithful servant. Now let's, let's turn back to, to Titus. That, that's what Paul is saying here or pointing to. This is what should motivate us uh, to holy living in this life is the the expectation that Christ is going to return, and when He does, 
he will reward those who have been faithful to him, and he will judge those who have been been unfaithful and used the resources that have been entrusted to them unwisely. Uh, and when you realize that everything that you have in your life, uh, all of your money, all of your uh, property, all of your resources, and even your time and your relationships have been entrusted to you to use for the glory of God, that changes everything about the way that you live, right? Because now that, that friendship with your neighbor, it's not about what you can get out of your gain, but it's what? How does, how does God want me to, to steward this relationship uh, so that when Christ returns, I can give a good report of this is the relationship, this is the friendship that you've given to me, this is how I've used it for your glory. Same thing with all of your resources, and uh, most notably, our time, right? Uh, time is the great equalizer. How, mu- how much time uh, does Johnny have in a day? Yeah, yeah. How much time does Bruce have in a day? <laughs> no, it, it's all things are equal. See, uh, th- there's there's nobody who has more time, and there's nobody who has less time. Everybody is given the same amount of time to act and obey Christ. So time is the great equalizer, and we are called to use our time for His glory rather than our own. No, and this is uh, this this is sobering. Uh, and th- but this is what uh, God's grace is intended to to impress upon us and to sanctify us. And ultimately, uh, the goal of this sanctifying grace isn't just to have us remain where we are, but to to take us from where we are and make us like Jesus. And we also see that uh, in our third point uh, that that God's grace is a sacrificial grace uh, in verse 14. So it ends. Uh, Verse 13 ends with this statement of, hey, we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then, who gave himself for us? Number one, to redeem us from all lawlessness. And number two, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God's grace is a sacrificial grace because the grace of God is extended to us because Christ gave himself for us. But then again, we can can be like little kids and we can just ask why. Why did did Christ sacrifice his life for us? Well, we see two reasons here. Number one, to to redeem us, to to rescue us, to, to save us from what does it say? All lawlessness. To, to save us from sin. And then secondly, to, to purify us. Again, not to, to leave us as we were, but to make us holy. And look at this, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Uh, and wh- how does he, wh- what should describe them? They are zealous for good works. Zealots in the old, in at this point in time, were, were, the, were radicals. They were, they were the, the, the terrorists of their day. Uh, and, and God wants that type of, uh, I guess, passion within us. Not that we go around killing people, uh, but that we are so zealous for the glory of God that that is what consumes and drives all of our actions. And we are zealous for good works because we want to glorify our Father who is in heaven. And he wants to, to, re, to redeem us. And you can say these, these two go hand in hand. See, the first one, to, to redeem us, is to take uh, the Christian out of sin, so to speak. Hey, you were in sin in your old life. Uh, I'm going to remove you from that and to rescue you from that realm of sin and in the world. And then the, the second action is, uh, is to take sin out of the Christian. So one is taking the Christian out of sin and then taking sin out of the Christian to purify us. 
to, to have us, again, put off and put on uh, what we're to say uh, yes to and no to. Uh, and th- this reality of, of purification, that, that's, what, that's what God is calling us to. That's why Jesus saved us. And if that is why Jesus saved us, that corresponds perfectly with verses 1 through 10, right? Because Paul w- was calling Titus to teach the church to, uh, to live in a way that nobody in the outside world could pull them down. And that the outside world would have no reason to, uh, to look at the church and say, I can't believe in Jesus because look at his church, look at his bride. Uh, and uh, as we said last week, what's the number one reason most people don't come to church? Hypocrites, right? Uh, we don't want to be a stumbling block to other people believing in Jesus. We want to be light that shines forth in, in the darkness. Uh, and all of this is intended to be uh, a powerful motivation for uh, Titus and for uh, th- th- these churches at Crete. Now, this is what should motivate your, your obedience. And uh, when I was uh, playing football uh, in, in high school and in college, uh, the boring stuff happened throughout the week. Okay, the, the, the drudgery of practice, showing up early in the morning when it was cold uh, or late in the afternoon when it was hot, uh, all of those things. That's when you work on the game plan. That's when all of the instructions were given uh, and uh, you were told what to do and how to do it and the coach would be on your case and all of these things. So that, that's like Titus one, 2, verses 1 through 10. This is the game plan. This is what I want you to, to do. This is how you coach up each individual position. Older men are supposed to do this. Older women here. Younger men, men here. Younger women here. This is what they're supposed to do. Here's the game plan, Titus. And then, uh, usually in, in football, uh, just on, on Saturdays, just before you're getting ready to play, uh, and everyone, everyone's already excited because everything that you've been learning about, uh, you're finally going to get to put into practice. Uh, but also, what, what the coach usually does just before the game uh, is, is the pregame speech. Uh, and what's the, what's the, the goal of the pregame speech? Motivate. Yeah, to motivate. He wants to fire up the players. This, this, is, this is Paul's pregame speech to Titus. Uh, he, he wants to motivate the church uh, for them to, to see what they're focused on and, and what they need to begin to pursue. And, uh, and I know uh, my college coaches weren't too good at pregame speeches, but my high school coach, uh, he, he gave a couple. Uh, he didn't do it every week, but on big games, he would do it in... Uh, and, I, and I played quarterback, but I, w- I would leave the, the pregame speech ready to hit someone. Uh, I, I was ready to go. Like, Coach, put me in a linebacker. Let's do this. Uh, you're the quarterback, Thomas. Just, just calm down. Throw the ball. Hand it off. Uh, but, but that's what this should do when we think about it, is, is realizing what God's grace has done in our lives. Now, how God's grace has saved us, and now our standing is sure with the Lord. And no matter what happens, no matter what trials take place in our lives, he will hold us fast. We, we are sure and steady in Christ. And then God's grace sanctifies us. It doesn't leave us where we are. It helps us to, to grow and to get better. Uh, it, it trains us. It helps us uh, in understanding what we're to, uh, to quit, what we're to supposed to stop, what we're supposed to begin to pursue, uh, and then what we, where we should keep our eyes, uh, keeping our eyes upon Christ. And even more so when we realize what Christ did to save us and then to make sanctification possible. See, all of that, the, uh, our salvation and, and the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us, the, the sending of the Spirit is made possible because Christ died for us on the cross. And then he ascended to heaven and then sent the Spirit. 
that, that reality of the, the sacrificial grace of God should, should cause us to feel what? Thankfulness. A, uh, and a worship of God because of what he has first done in us while we were sinners, while we were running and rebelling against him, Christ saved us. And now he is working in us to take sin out of us in the same way that he has taken us out of sin. And we want to thank him and praise him for that. And we want our lives uh, to be uh, a display of worship. Uh, that's what we long for it to be. And, uh, and well, if you turn to Romans 12, famous, famous verses. Romans 12, 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, often we think of this as individuals, right? Uh, of the, hey, okay, I need to offer my body to God as an act of worship. But what does it say? Body is what? Plural there. Uh, and uh, if this was the, the southern version, it would be uh, y'all, y'all's bodies. Uh, it, it's plural. God wants us to offer our bodies as a church uh, together as an act of spiritual worship to him. That is our worship by, by living out Titus uh, 2, uh, of living out what God has called us to do and to be so that we are visible in the world uh, and that we can then witness to the world because we're, we're walking and living out consistently what Christ is calling us to. And, and may we pray to that end now. May we go forth uh, as individuals and corporately to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our great God and Savior. You are the one who has saved us. You are the one who is in the process of sanctifying us, uh, of purifying us. Lord, you have redeemed us. You have rescued us from sin. Lord, that is what poses the greatest danger to our lives, to our hearts, and ultimately to our souls. And you have rescued us from sin. And for that, we thank you. We praise you. And our rescue was costly to you. It costs you your life. You gave your life for ours. And Lord, now we long to respond to your grace, to respond to your mercy with worship and with thanksgiving. Not only on Sunday mornings, not only when we gather in our small groups, but Lord, each and every moment of each and every day. And Lord, we, we do that so imperfectly. Lord, we are all guilty of ungodliness, but I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, that you would impress upon our minds those moments when we are acting in our own self-interest, when we have lost a vision of your glory, your goodness, and our dependence upon you. And Lord, reorient our hearts in those moments so that we live our lives in worship, focused upon your glory rather than upon our own desires. Lord, we long to worship you, to glorify you, so that the world around us sees how you are transforming us, and they want to know who you are. Lord, may we adorn the doctrine of God faithfully with our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.